According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, which we started the last week and uh, had a couple of classes in it already. Philippians chapter 4, the fourth and final chapter of the book. And uh, and the chapter everyone was waiting for, I think, when we announced Philippians all that time back, because so many of our Bible verses come from Philippians, the ones we memorized since we were kids, like Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we've got this wonderful promise, this wonderful verse that tells us to be anxious for nothing. And you've been very anxious waiting for us to get to that verse as we seem to have taken some time to, to reach this point. But the Lord uh, is showing us what we need to learn, and uh, that will also include tonight. Uh, as it says in verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, a better way of phrasing that would be, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so uh, we've got to deal with that before we can move on to uh, what follows. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. If we're sitting here out of fellowship, if we're in carnality or darkness, uh, we're wasting our time. So let's start with a word of prayer and ask for our Father's blessing. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do thank you for tonight and the blessing of truth that uh, you have provided for each one of us, Father. We don't deserve this. It's a grace provision, Father, that uh, you've preserved a lampstand, you've kept the bills paid, the doors open, the lights are on. So here we are, Father, and feed us from your truth tonight. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take a few minutes for some Q&A if we have anything pending from Sunday morning or anything. I think Kevin... I uh, promised you the first question. You said you had one earlier. Is that right? All right. And then, Chris, we can start with Kevin. Bring the microphone to you. Chris. Okay, I have two questions. They're rather adolescent, probably, but I figured I'd embarrass myself and ask them here. Um, the first one, getting clear on uh, um, the rapture doctrine that we are covering. Mm-hmm. Um, those that were gathered to Abraham's bosom pre, before Christ, those that died waiting for him, mm-hmm. did he grab them um, from Sheol before his ascension, or are they still there? No, that's an excellent question. It's not related to the rapture at all, but that's an excellent question, yeah. Uh, when, when the rich man died and Lazarus died and they descended and they were on both sides of that gulf, Abraham's bosom is the side of that chasm that has comfort and, and encouragement and rest. And the other side is the side where the rich man went to, and that was hell, essentially. That's where the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the torments, the agony of the flames, and things like that. Now, that is, uh, the torments is still there, but the, the compartment of comfort called paradise, or Abraham's bosom, that has been relocated. Jesus led captivity captive, it says. And when he led captivity captive, he emptied out that compartment of Abraham's bosom. It's no longer there. In fact, paradise used to be, when he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, remember that? Jesus was hanging on the cross and he told that repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And so paradise used to be there, Abraham's bosom where, the, where, where Lazarus was sent. But today paradise is in the third heaven. When the apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven, he was caught up to paradise. So we know that paradise has been relocated. And that's what Jesus did when he led captivity captive. Now, back to the rapture question. Those Old Testament believers, those Old Testament believers are not in Christ. That's significant. It's only the believers of the church age, that is, those from Pentecost to rapture that are church age saints. And so uh, when, when the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends with a shout, and when the dead in Christ rise first, that doesn't include Noah or Daniel or Job or any of those Old Testament saints. But it would start with the church. It starts with Peter and James and John and all the first century uh, martyrs and all through 20 centuries of church history and includes my mom and whoever else that uh, that died in the church age. They're the dead in Christ that rise first. So does that answer your question then? Totally. 
So the Old Testament saints, they get raised after the tribulation, after Armageddon, after the second advent, at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom then, there is a, a resurrection there whereby we sit on thrones with Christ and preside over their resurrection. So we'll see them raised and we'll see them rewarded and we will see them receive their their life evaluations and so forth. We'll watch Job get his reward. We'll watch Daniel get his reward. And uh, that's at the beginning of the millennium when the, when the Old Testament heroes get raised. So, Excellent question. Thank you for that. Okay. Is there so something else? My other question I think is more history than biblical. We were in Romans uh, 111 mm-hmm. and talking about the the church in Rome being unestablished and Paul hoping he could get there. I'm guessing he never did. He did. He did get there. Uh-huh. Okay. Acts chapter 26. He finally made it there at the end of the book of Acts. I was considering um, what was spoken in there about them being so famous all over the world mm-hmm. and how big they were and if that has any connection with them later on becoming the Roman Catholic Church. Well, yeah. I mean, that's Rome was the capital of the of the Gentile world empire, and so, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of wealth in a capital city. There's a lot of political power, clearly, uh, and so uh, the the church at Rome became one of the five dominant churches of the early of the early church, and especially after the rise of Islam, then when Jerusalem falls and Alexandria falls and Antioch falls, that took care of three of the eastern churches right there, and so that really left. Constantinople and Rome, uh, plus uh, Hippo in North Africa, Carthage, you know, some of those places still, uh, you know, still existed uh, until Islam took North Africa too, honestly. So Rome and Constantinople became really the leading centers of Christendom. And, uh, and even to this day, you got the Western Roman Catholic Church and you have the Eastern Orthodox Church. So that's kind of how that developed. But no, the, uh, all the legends about Peter being the first pope and founding all of that, well this, this verse proves it, that they have not been established. So they are not a, a grounded church uh, by apostolic authority until Paul arrives. And that's, uh, that's the point I think I was making a couple, couple Sundays ago. Right. And that's, that, that just comes by twisting Matthew 16 is all that talks about. When, when Jesus said, you are Peter on this rock I will build my church, Jesus was using a play on words based on Peter's name and taking Petros, which is the masculine name for Peter, and then Petra being a, a feminine noun for rock, and then showing the contrast between the two. So the rock is not Peter. The rock is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that, uh, that's the confession we hold to in the body of Christ. So yeah, that's, uh, that's another issue there too. Alright, well thank you for that. Alright, Catherine has a question. We get to cross the aisle and go to the right side of the aisle here. Oh, wasn't your question? Oh, okay. I wasn't no, supposed we to use your name. We just wanted to, okay. to clear something up. Uh-huh. So the Old Testament believers that died, um, mm-hmm. they're in Abraham's bosom? That's where they went when they died, and now they're in heaven because that whole compartment so has been... after Christ died on the cross, right. then they went up that to heaven. That whole compartment has been brought up to heaven, correct. Yeah. So today, it's kind of normal for us to say that when we die today, we go to heaven, right? When a believer dies today, we say they're absent from the body and they're, they're at home with the Lord. You know, my mother died, she went to heaven. In the Old Testament, that wasn't true. They didn't die and go to heaven. They died and went to Sheol. They went to uh, Abraham's bosom, the, the compartment of peace within Sheol itself. So uh, that's it's really, uh, we get confused because of how things are now, and we just assume that's the way it's always been. But you know, before the cross, it wasn't like that. And where do you find that in the Bible? In the Gospels, and uh, with the repentant thief on the cross, uh, that's in the Gospel of Luke when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then also the Gospel of Luke has that story of the rich man and, and Lazarus when, uh, when they both died and they went to the opposite sides of, of Sheol. Yeah, that's also in the Gospel of Luke. All right, thank you. Those are good questions. What else tonight? Anything? Anything at all? No? Yes. Okay. Cross the aisle again. Can you remind me in Revelations when it talks about the guys at the altar that want to be released? I, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh, where is that? Revelation 7? The interlude? Um, 
the multitude from the tribulation, they cried out with a loud voice. So probably, where is that? Is that chapter 14 perhaps? You know, somebody has taught Revelation once or twice. So because he tells them to rest, right? He tells them to go and rest until the number of your brethren be made complete. Is that the passage you're talking about? Yeah, and so when we were when Kevin was asking about the Old Testament saints, I was thinking, okay, I was trying to remember who these guys were. And so Revelation six and verse nine. Now they're tribulational martyrs, and you could think of them as Old Testament saints, but they are tribulational martyrs after the church age. So that's still future from our standpoint in twenty eighteen A.D. Yeah, it's Revelation six nineteen. You're welcome. There was a major update to Lagos Bible software this week. So as of Monday, I uh, I don't know how to use my software anymore. <laughs> so I'm learning, I'm learning, and I'm realizing it's there's a lot of similarities, and then there's also some brand new things, and I'm getting surprised. So I installed it on Monday, and all day Tuesday I'm finding little things going, oh. What does that do? And, and experimenting with different things. So I feel like the summer we spent giving Logos lessons, now we have to do it all over again uh, for anybody that's going to upgrade to uh, to Logos 8. But but so far, what I found is uh, is pretty cool. So I am uh, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So all right, well then let's go to uh, Philippians four and pick up what we were looking at on Sunday. Thank you for running the microphone. We're going to basically break chapter 4 down into three parts. We're going to start with verses 1 through 9. Chapter 4 begins with practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. So we had the rapture doctrine at the end of chapter 3. And then we talk about our citizenship is in heaven. If you notice uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, the last two verses of chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So that transformation, when this body is cast off and it's transformed into the body of glory, that's the rapture of the church. And uh, this is what we're looking forward to by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That self-subjection, all things are going to be subject to the Son, everything except the Father, of course, and then at the, uh, at the uh, Omega moment, He Himself will surrender the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. So that's how chapter 3 ends. Now chapter 3 ends with this great rapture doctrine, and then chapter 4 begins with a therefore. Alright? Therefore, and also an in this way. An in this way. And those two things tie together what we just studied in chapter 3 and bring it into the application of chapter 4. In other words, it's not good enough to just know the rapture doctrine. It's not just good enough to know the facts, that these are truths that we should first of all know, but then we should be impacted by these. We should uh, be affected. Uh, the whole concept of imminency should be such that it builds a, a, uh, a sense of urgency in all of us, that we realize tonight could be the night. Uh, we're not going to be prideful or arrogant or think that, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm going to live 50 more years or whatever. Uh, no, tonight that trumpet can sound and I can be standing before the creator God of the universe and giving an account for how I wasted all this time here on this earth. And so that sense of urgency happens when you are affected uh, by rapture doctrine. So I call it rapture reflection and uh, any believer engaged in, in true rapture reflection, I believe, uh, is going to be prompted to, uh, to diligence and, and godliness in their Christian walk. And so that's what we see here in these first nine verses. And it closes that with the verse nine, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so this is obviously descriptive of believers for whom Bible study is is only the beginning, not the end, that it's a means to an end, that we study the word of God so we can live it out in our lives. And, uh, and very much we have that emphasis here in those first nine chapters, or nine verses of this chapter. Then there's a bit of a, uh, just kind of one final side trip, one final item that he mentions in verses 10 through 19. Before he closes the epistle, he does want to give a particular thanksgiving for the money that they sent him. Philippi had sent a, a marvelous grace gift for him, 
And uh, Epaphroditus was the servant that brought it. So one final item Paul mentions prior to closing this epistle is the grace financial provision that he appreciated from the Philippian saints. And uh, Epaphroditus was the agent that carried it, and uh, he gets mentioned here. Uh, we had previously seen him in, in uh, chapter 2 when uh, uh, Paul said he was going to send him quickly because he was sick and he was concerned uh, about the Philippians. And most likely Epaphroditus is the courier that carried the scroll. Remember uh, when, when Paul finished writing Philippians he didn't just email it to Philippi. It was, it was on a scroll. This was quill to scroll and so somebody had to carry this thing and, uh, and that's what uh, Epaphroditus did when he brought them uh, the book of Philippians. And so we'll deal with that in verses 10 through 9 and then really it's a very short uh, 10 through 19 and then it's a really very short conclusion, one of the shortest of all the Pauline epistles um, he doesn't have a long list of, of greetings. He doesn't have, it's a very short greeting in doxology, one of the shortest at the end of any Pauline text in verses 20 through uh, 23. And uh, so we'll deal with that. And then we'll be done. We'll finish Philippians and move on to uh, what comes after Philippians? Colossians. All right, we'll move on to Colossians after that. So for tonight, as we deal with rapture, reflections, and response, we're talking about this tender greeting here where he calls them beloved and longed for. He calls them beloved. And this was point one in the outline. Paul begins this epistle's conclusion with the tenderest address given to any local church. He doesn't speak to Corinth this way. He doesn't speak to Galatians this way. He calls them foolish. He doesn't speak to uh, the Romans this way. He didn't really know them. Um, uh, the only one that maybe approaches this as a fellow Macedonian church with Thessalonica, he does have some tender words for them, but not in the address, not at the beginning and not at the end. Certainly not like this. So therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, beloved. And so uh, he opens the verse and closes the verse with the agapetos, beloved, that we were looking at on Sunday. And so really, um, two things that we'll see under this, uh, the beloved and the longed for elements. Um, beloved, I'm not going to spend, we, we dealt with this at some length, there's a lot of agapetos verses. If you want to study agapetos, uh, man, you can, you can have fun with that. The one thing I will say about agapetos is don't lose track of what kind of love this is. This is the agape love right there. So you got agape with T-O-S on the end of it, Okay agapetos. And so it's a noun that is connected uh, with agape love. And so it's the object of your agape love is your beloved. It's not Valentine's Day love. Okay? It's not romantic love. It's not, uh, you know, I love you, will you marry me and let's spend the rest of our life together love. This is agape love. Okay? And when we talk about agape love, stay tuned because this is part of every wedding service I ever do. Agape love is not philos, it's not storge, it's not eros, it's not any other kind of love that's out there. This is God's love. This is the love by which God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. It's the love by which Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself for her. It's also, by the way, the love that husbands are commanded to give to their wives. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. And that's uh, in Ephesians 5. So this term uh, agapetos is huge and we did these uh, subpoints and these other verses. If you uh, if you want that, you can go get them off the website. MP3s are just sitting there. But then this other term for longed for, epipathetos, uh, used of a longing, used of a thirst, used of a lust, uh, like a baby that's longing for the milk uh, when it's used there in First Peter two two, like a newborn babe longing for the pure milk of the word of God, and uh, in aspects there. And I think. It's, it's curious that a lot of believers, they, they have it early in their Christian walk, they have a great hunger, but then a, a time comes and it just, uh, I don't know, it, the, the love grows cold or something happens, uh, the appetite diminishes, the hunger lessens, and uh, they don't seem to hunger the way that they used to. Well, a, a study like epipathetos uh, is helpful in that regard, or epipatheo is, uh, is helpful in that regard. The idea of a longing, all right, whereby something is removed and you just can't wait to get it back, or you can't wait to see it again, can't wait to see that person again. And um, that's what's communicated here. So my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, and when we get to the joy and crown element, this is where we ran out of time on Sunday, 
And I gave this to you as um, subpoint B. So we handled beloved and longed for under subpoint A, and now we're handling uh, the uh, joy and crown part under main point B, right? Are we following so far? So there's the beloved and longed for, and now there's the joy and the crown. And so I invented an acronym, and you're welcome. This is uh, a blessing. You're getting cutting edge here before you know the books make millions and we get famous. You'll say, I was there the night that joy and crown kindred was introduced because joy and crown kindred is the, is the Jack acronym. And it, it was tragic to me that Jack wasn't here on Sunday morning when I was uh, first giving this. I thought he, uh, he would have enjoyed that. But the joy and crown kindred, that's the idea that we're not just church members, we're not just family, we're actually, we are each other's joy. We are each other's crown. And we have crowns that we hope to receive at the judgment seat of Christ. There's crowns that we want to receive when we get to heaven. But don't confuse the crowns that we want to receive someday with the crowns that are sitting right in front of us here, here and now. We are each other's crowns. And so the point being is if we're not edifying one another, if we're not serving one another, if we're not ministering and building up one another, then you can forget those future crowns because you're neglecting the present crowns right here and now. And that's, uh, that's a huge point that uh, we don't want to miss as we, as we look at these terms. And so, um, yeah, I've been having some fun with this and not to, you know, you want, it, you want an acronym to communicate, so you want it to be effective. You don't want it to be so silly that it dishonors the Lord or whatever. But um, So maybe it's overboard to create a Jill acronym to go with Jack and Jill. Maybe that's too much. But still, the, the, the Jack acronym, uh, acronym is helpful because there's so many, think about how many Jack expressions we have in English, right? Like, you don't know Jack. And that's uh, the one that I showed on Sunday, which is this little button here. Um, the, the fact is, if you drift from consistent local church fellowship, if you don't spend time with the Joy and Crown kindred, how do you know them? And so this is what happens when you drift from your local church uh, fellowship, that uh, you don't know your joy and your crown kindred in, uh, in the way that you're supposed to know them. And that's, uh, that's what we're called to do. So anyway, that's that. Now with this, of course, comes uh, problems because uh, we're dealing with people. And anytime you're dealing with people, what are you going to have? Problems, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have misunderstandings. You're going to have personalities. You're going to have uh, things that are going to be said in a thoughtless way, and then, and then someone's going to be offended, and then, you know, and then something else gets said to make it worse, and then something else gets said, and it's just what happens, okay? We're dealing with people, and in dealing with people, we're dealing with problems, and we're dealing with things, and that's not an accident. This is how God designed it. We're supposed to relate this way, and we're supposed to overcome the little things so that we can stay united together with our love for Jesus Christ. And so hopefully uh, these things make sense. So let's pick up where we dropped it and uh, start with 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because I think this is a marvelous parallel text. Even though it may not use the precise vocabulary, clearly the, the sense of, uh, of this is here in terms of a joy and a crown. The, uh, the thing that you're proud of, that's your crown. Right? The wife is a crown of her husband. The godly wife is a crown of her husband. Or, or gray hair is the crown of of an old man, or things like that. The, the Bible talks about uh, different crowns that we wear, and what a crown is is something that you are proud of, something that, uh, that you esteem and others will esteem, and you can fellowship in together. So in 2 Corinthians 1, when he talks about our proud confidence is this, he's talking about a crown concept, even if he doesn't use the word crown. He says our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. And so he says, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. I'm very pleased with how the Lord used us and what happened there in Corinth when we came through. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, or read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. And so what happens is that there's time that it takes to read and to understand and that there's going to be a partial understanding before there's a complete understanding. And that's why he repeats this. So what you read and understand, and I hope that you will understand until the end, just as you also 
partially did understand us. And this is what happens. This is what happens when you're first getting to know somebody and when you don't know them that well and then, you know, they say something and you're not quite sure how to take it because you don't know them that well. And then you're saying, well, okay, thank you, I think. <laughs> you know, maybe. Was that a compliment? Was that an insult? I'm not sure how to take that. What is that? What did he mean when he said such and such? You know. And so, uh, you know, an email comes out from the church. I love the way sometimes just out of the blue, out of nowhere, uh, Warren Dowd will send out an email with a Grace Notes topic and whatever. And then, but you know, you see it sitting in your inbox and you think, why is he sending me that? You know, you, you're sending me the doctrine of, of, you think I got a problem with this? Why are you sending this to me? You know, what are you trying to say? And, and so you just, you stop, you slow down, you relax, you, uh, you don't, you don't uh, be so subjective of everything, you just thank the Lord for being gracious. And, uh, and let it go. So when it says, as you partially did understand us, what, I asked this question on Sunday, uh, what's another word for partial understanding? Another word for partial understanding is misunderstanding. All right? And so when a misunderstanding arises, all right, it happens all the time. Let's work through it. Let's get beyond it. Because if, if I love the Lord and you love the Lord, then we're, we're on the same team and, and let's go. So um, partial understanding that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours, not only today but in the day of our Lord Jesus. In the day of our Lord Jesus. So just think about it. Think about the believers that are your reason to be proud when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And are you going to stand there in confidence or are you going to stand there in fear? Are you going to stand there prepared and, and just excited over what the Lord's going to say? Or are you standing there in fear and dread about what the Lord's going to say because uh, you haven't exactly been walking in the light the way He's expected us to, to do so? But He tells the, the Corinthians here, you're my reason to be proud and I'm your reason to be proud. And this is uh, both in time and eternity. And so a reason to be proud, this is a crown, uh, a crown, a joy in a crown, and part of why we call each other the joy in the crown. And uh, we are joy and crown kindred. But understand it takes time. Doesn't happen overnight, doesn't happen just like that. And, uh, and if you expect it to, you're in for a world of hurt. <laughs> you're in for all kinds of disappointment, you know. And it's like I tell couples that are getting married too, I mean just figure this out, the wedding's the easy part. It's the marriage afterward that takes time and it takes work and it takes uh, overcoming the, the, the misunderstandings and the disagreements and, and the other things. So um, that's, that's how this all comes together. And then secondly, also from the same text, derived via these reasons to be proud. Joy in our brethren is derived via reasons to be proud. And so we find those reasons to be proud. And, uh, and if, you, if you're struggling to name something, then uh, struggle harder, okay? Uh, then serve that uh, brother or that sister until such time as you have a reason to be proud, okay? And so uh, I think the, uh, the reason why our joy is taken away is because we don't take the time and invest our ministry into the lives of our fellow believers. And so instead of pouring ourselves into them and just being thrilled with, with their growth and their, uh, their blessings and, and, and everything... Um, so instead of pouring ourselves into them, we then sit back and, and in, a, in a worldly way, in a carnal way, we, uh, we expect that they're going to do something for us. And then we get bent out of shape when uh, it seems like they're not doing enough, right? And we get, uh, well, what have you done for me lately? And then, and then we get this whole thing about, you know, and, and there's no joy in that. There's, there can't be. There's no joy in that. So if, uh, if we think that Christianity is taking rather than giving, then we've missed the whole point on that. But uh, really from verse 14, also from 3 John, this, this idea of what we're pouring into them, how we're supporting such men, how we are supporting their ministry and their growth, there's no greater joy than to see children walking in the truth. And that's what uh, 3 John deals with. I'll pull that up here real quick. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. If you get to Jude, you've gone too far. Seriously, if you can find Jude, that's impressive. 3 John. 3 John. And this is um, 
you know, 15 little verses here. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Realize that soul prosperity comes before any other kind of health and prosperity that you can look at. And then he says, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. There's no greater joy than that. That's exciting. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And so this is the concept here, just as Paul was saying to the Corinthians, the fact that these brothers and sisters are living in the Word of God, that they're occupied with Christ, they're growing in grace and knowledge, you know, anything else is just details. Oh, you know, oh, they became a, they became a brain surgeon. How about that? Are, are they living in the Word of God? <laughs> you know, are they in church? Are they under teaching? Are they growing in Scripture? Are they part of a ministry? Are they supporting the saints? All of that, the spiritual dynamic of the church is so much more significant than the, the secular things of, you know, the house they built or the job they got or, or, you know, the pretty girl they married or whatever else is happening. It's are they living in the truth? See? And so that then becomes a joy. And then, here's what's even better. I think in Third John it was a little bit more distant because of, of the way that letter was written. But with the Philippians and with the Corinthians and with those that Paul was ministering to were hands-on, that is a huge reason to be proud. Because you realize that all of that grace and action, Lord, the Lord used you to be a part of that. You know, I mean just think about what, what Austin Bible Church, the benefit Austin Bible Church had to uh, to the pastors that have gone out of here, see, for Cliff and Terry Beveridge or for Dan and Stephanie Craw and for just think about that. Because the Lord used this ministry to produce those other ministries, to bless those pastors, to train them. And so, you know, when um, you think about on any given Sunday and these pastors are preaching to their flocks and whatever, you know, just think about that. That we heard their first sermon, <laughs> right? And, uh, and we loved them and we prayed for them and we supported them and we encouraged them and we told them, no, we don't think it was terrible. And we, we, we did all those things. Okay? <laughs> and it wasn't, honestly, neither one. But see, this is the thing, and we're doing it again, right? We're doing it now with Bill Kelly and with Lewis and with Cornelius and with, with Wes and uh, Eliezer and these guys. And it's just exciting to see, you know. And we don't know what the Lord is going to do or if Eliezer and Vinny go back to India or whatever. We don't know down the road what's going to happen, all right? But whatever happens, we know that each one of us poured part of us, ourselves into that. We, and, and, and so they are our joy and our crown. And that there's going to be that, that assurance when we get to the judgment seat of Christ that these are gold, silver, precious stones that are just waiting for us, that are sitting there because of the, the, uh, the love that was poured in. So it is it's a, it's a powerful thing. And it is uh, mutually reciprocal, so it can be a two-way street as, uh, as, uh, as I'm sure if uh, these, you know, I'm talking behind their back right now, but um, uh, if, if Pastor Cliff was here tonight he'd say the same thing, okay? He would absolutely say the same thing. That just as we're proud of him, he's proud of us. They pray for us like we pray for them and it's, it's, uh, it's a glorious thing. And so we get, we get those principles there. We also see that uh, sometimes conflict gets in the way and we're taken apart for a time. And so the third point, joy and crown kindred are the ones we long to see when angelic conflict hinders such personal fellowship. Joy and crown kindred are the ones that we long to see when angelic conflict hinders such personal fellowship. And this comes out in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 17 and 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses uh, 6, 17 and 18. And so if we're familiar with this in the background here, it would have been on Paul's second missionary journey then, and they came through Philippi, got arrested, got released, the jailer got saved, they had to leave Philippi, they came to Thessalonica. And they stayed in Thessalonica, would have loved to stay longer, but after three weeks they got run out of town. After three weeks they were driven away. That uh, The Jews stirred up a, a, a near riot and uh, the authorities were edgy based on uh, not so much maybe what Paul was talking about, but based on other political considerations in the Roman Empire at that time. 
And so uh, not wanting a disturbance to, uh, to raise uh, red flags in the, in the Roman uh, authorities, they said, get out of here. We don't, need, you know, we don't need this kind of trouble in our town. Not only did they drive him out of town, they took cash. They took a, a, a bond from Jason to, uh, to not come back, right? And it was almost like the, uh, I, I call it anti-bail because it's the opposite of normal bail. <laughs> and where you promise, you, you give the judge money and the court money promising to come back for your trial, that's called bail, okay? Which none of you know anything about, but I used to work in the jail, so I'll tell you. That's how it works, okay? You get accused of a crime, you post bail, which is your promise to say, I don't have to stay in jail, I'm going to come back for my court date, and, and that's what bail is about, okay? Well, when they, when they drove Paul out of town, he, he, had to, he had to give the reverse of that. He had to give a reverse bail which was cash money that he would forfeit. Jason would forfeit that if Paul came back to town again. So that's uh, the serious issue there. So they were driven away, and Paul describes this here in 2 Thessalonians 2.17. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit. Isn't that great? Because no matter where you end up, you can still pray. And no matter where you end up, you know, your heart is still with the people that you love and the flock that you learn the Word of God with and all these other things. And, and I tell you, we're totally spoiled in our generation because we've got Skype and text messages and Facebook and all kinds of things where, um, you know, what would, what, would, uh, what would Paul have done with Twitter? You know, <laughs> if, if, what would that have been like if the Apostle Paul was traveling around with a Twitter account? But this is... Uh, This is what we're looking at. So uh, taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we were all the more eager with great desire. Here's epipatheo, with great desire to see your face. And so, yeah, the the fond memories are one thing, the prayer or something, and the the letters you can send back and forth is is all well and good. But that dynamic of face-to-face fellowship where, again, you're in the Word of God and you're you're, uh, loving the Lord in these things, there's nothing like it. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. Who are the authors on Thessalonica, first and second? It's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And of those three, Timothy was the only one that was able to sneak in there on different occasions because Paul and Silvanus were the, were the adults that were driven out of town. And Timothy was probably 10 years old, 10 or 12 years old, uh, as he was traveling with Paul and got his first real uh, solo experience teaching uh, Bible class in, uh, in this context. So we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Remember, the church age is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, and so we deal with this all the time. There's constant battles. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities and powers, the rulers and the authorities, and we end up and we start facing things that don't make any human sense, and we wonder, what's happening here? How does this happen? Well, there's no human explanation for it. It's the, it's the fallen angels at work. It's the demons at work. There's a, and especially in, in, I think, the spirit of this age is one of tremendous perpetual offendedness. You know, we have this total culture about, ooh, I've been offended, and then that's, gonna, that's like the end of the world or something, you know. So um, anyway, pray about that too. Because it's not flesh and blood. Whoever the people are that are having the issues, it's not the people, okay? Love the people. It's the, it's the angelic conflict that's driving these things apart. So Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Here's the same language, okay? And the best part of it is there's no jealousy between the Thessalonians and the Philippians, okay? When Paul writes to the Philippians and tells the Philippians that, uh, that they are his joy and his crown, they don't, uh, the Thessalonians aren't going to get their nose bent out of shape and say, well, wait a minute, I thought we were your joy and crown, right? I thought we were your uh, hope and joy and crown of exaltation, see? And, and I mean, you see why this could be a problem in, in, in carnality or human emotions or whatever? Well, I mean, this could be like a, it could very quickly become like, you know, Valentine's in the third grade or something, you know, if, 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 <laughs> You said I was your Valentine. How you know? And then you get all upset when you find out that you know you asked Susie to be your Valentine too. And and yeah, it doesn't work like that, okay? And so, is there any limit to the believers that can be your joy and your crown? No. Is there any limit to the believers you can serve and you can love and you can minister to? Okay. 
anyway. I don't see a, a biblical limit. Uh, I suppose theoretically there's a point of exhaustion limit where you just drop dead serving, but but uh, that's what the ministry is called anyway. It's kapiao, serving to the point of exhaustion. And so uh, it's, it's God's strength anyway, so keep serving. And that's uh, that's the best part. So, uh, who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? So when that trumpet sounds, notice it's the same rapture connection that we have in Philippians. Uh, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And uh, and we come to this again and again. So the ones that we long to see when angelic conflict hinders such personal fellowship. And and this maybe is a little red flag, it's a little reminder from time to time if um, you know, if, if there's somebody you haven't seen for a while and you wonder, you know, where they've been. And and then does it trouble you that it kind of escaped your notice? Does it trouble you that, oh, I hadn't noticed them for a while? They have been gone for, for a while now, hadn't it? You know, and then and then you, sh- you should say, well, wait a minute, why didn't I notice that sooner? And or why does that not trouble me more? Or why and, if, and especially if you have a, eh, whoa, what is that? If they come back, they come back. If they don't, they don't. Well, wait a minute. If you are a part of the flock that they are a part of and we have the one another imperatives, uh, then it, it is a big deal whether they come back or not because I'm expected to serve them and they're expected to serve me and this is, this is the, uh, the way that this is designed to work. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's pay attention to these things. And then fourthly, uh, crowns will be awarded in the future, but the joy of attaining such crowns happens now. Crowns will be awarded in the future, but the joy of attaining such crowns happens now. And I tell you, you know, uh, Michael Phelps has to wait until the, the medal ceremony when he can stand there and, you know, the, the national anthem starts playing and the flag goes up and, and there, you know, he's getting his. 35th gold medal or whatever. You know, you, you, get the, you get the crown later. But what about the thrill when you're earning it, right? When you're earning it in the swimming pool or you're earning it at the, at the competition, at the race or whatever you're doing. So in, in um, we just read the verses already in verses 19 and 20 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Crowns will be awarded in the future, but the joy happens now. So is it not even you in the pre- that's now and also in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming so that's the future for you are now verse 20 you are now our glory and our joy waiting to see the the crown when I get to be face to face with the Lord but I know it's waiting for me because I'm looking at him right now that's what he's saying and we can say the same thing we can have that same perspective now when we're looking at one another as joy and crown kindred and we're looking at one another as Jack, okay, in uh, in those things. So now we're going to talk about the therefore in this way. Therefore in this way. Therefore, as joy and crown kindred, in this way, eagerly waiting for our Savior, stand firm in the Lord. So back to Philippians four then. We've got to answer both the therefore and the in this way. And they're both connected, so it's not really possible to separate them. We can even combine them if we want, put them both up front in the sentence, the therefore in this way, stand firm in the Lord. So therefore, as joy and crown kindred, in this way, eagerly waiting for our Savior, stand firm in the Lord. Reflecting on rapture doctrine should create an attitudinal response. Reflecting on rapture doctrine should create an attitudinal response. That's standing firm. That's standing ready. The blessed hope of an imminent departure goads us to stay rapture ready. Goads us to to stay rapture ready. Now I didn't make up the phrase rapture ready. I stole that from different people. The, um, there's even a website called raptureready.com which uh, used to be pretty good. They, I think they ended up adding some other things later but um, Rapture Ready was a good website. Also um, the, uh, 
where I first heard the term was a automobile mechanic in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, when I ended up with two tires that were blown out and they towed me to a gas station and then I sitting there waiting for them to put new tires on my car. And, uh, and it was OU weekend as the Longhorns were playing Oklahoma. And <laughs> there's a story for you. Because they saw my Austin uh, plates and they weren't sure they were going to fix the car until uh, they knew that Oklahoma was going to win the game. And then you know, it was kind of an amusing day. But thankfully, the, the manager of the, whole, of the whole shop was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And he had a frame of reference for doctrine and for different things. And, and since uh, my car at the time was a, a Ford Mustang convertible, he, uh, he said, marvelous car. He said, I love it. He said, this convertible is, is great. And he said he calls that the rapture-ready vehicle. And that was his label for it. You just put the top down and you just wait for the trumpet. So that's the, <laughs> that's the rapture-ready vehicle. And uh, in any event, it's a good thing. We all should be rapture-ready, meaning uh, we're not spending prolonged time in carnality. We're confessing upon conviction that we're keeping short accounts, that we are maximizing our time in fellowship that we are dedicated to the ministry of the Word of God and service to the saints. And so all those things on track, uh, there's not a, hesit- uh, not a moment of hesitancy when that trumpet sounds. We're ready to go. And uh, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and, and man, we're ready to go. And we're not going to shrink away from him in shame at his appearing. That's what we want to avoid. Okay. So this uh, attitudinal response, this uh, readiness that uh, we, we read about in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, which started this whole study. Uh, also 1 Corinthians 1, 7. Uh, we'll see that here next. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 8 and Titus 2, 13. These are passages that I think communicate the blessings of imminency and the blessings of, uh, of diligence so that we are ready when the Lord returns. And then maybe one more while I'm at it, because it's not on the slide, but I think um, a lot of times I like to take people and, and point them to 1 John 2.28 and just ask them, you know, read that verse and what do you think it means and where do you think you are as you read uh, 1 John 2.28. So let's start with that and then we'll grab these, uh, these other verses. But 1 John 2.28 says, Now little children abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. You notice that? So what do you think that verse is saying? That verse is saying there's, there's two kinds of reactions when the trumpet sounds. And it's not the reaction of believers versus unbelievers because it's only believers that hear the trumpet anyway. It's only believers that are being snatched up. The unbelievers are being left here to face Antichrist and, and, and Satan and all the rest of tribulation. But when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him. Well, the contrast is not believer versus unbeliever. The contrast says so right here. It says abide in Him. And this is then the volitional decisions that we make as believers as far as whether we're going to live in the Word of God or not. If we're going to abide in Christ or not. That's like John 15, abide in me and I in you. Is the, because uh, uh, remember the doctrine of the vine, the vine and the branches and the bearing fruit. If you're not abiding in Him, how are you going to bear fruit? And so this is, this is, we're past the question of whether they're saved or not. It's, it's clear they're saved, but then the question becomes, are you going to abide in Christ? Are you going to live in the Word of God? If you abide in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine. I think most saved people aren't disciples. They're saved. They have eternal life. They're going to go to heaven when they die. Please, don't get me wrong. They're going to go to heaven when they die. But right here, right now, they're not living in the Word of God. And since they're not living in the Word of God, they're not disciples. A disciple is a learner, not a saved one, it's a learner. So um, if you don't want to shrink away from Him in shame, you need to abide in Him. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the truth of that there. I think that's a great definition of what it means to be rapture ready. So uh, then these other texts, I think uh, 1 Corinthians 1.7 You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the day of Christ is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is wrath and judgment on the earth, preparation of Israel for the millennial kingdom. 
the day of Christ is the, the blessed hope of our gathering to Him to be at home with the Lord, meeting the Lord in the air and going to heaven, standing before the judgment seat, and, uh, and then uh, being dressed for the, for the wedding feast. And so blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not lacking in any gift, again that's verse 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's rapture ready. Awaiting eagerly. Oh that it were today. If you're not awaiting eagerly then you could take it or leave it. And you'd kind of, honestly, you'd, you'd rather it was later. you know, Because you're not living in the Word of God, you're conformed to this world and you're having fun. Uh, the, it's pretty, uh, pretty common that uh, those believers that are not living in the Word of God get very conformed to this world very quickly. And uh, in which case then for that mindset uh, the rapture is terribly inconvenient. Uh, I mean the rapture that, that just stops all our fun right there in its tracks and we got to go to heaven and, and get ready for eternity and, and uh, so yeah that's not a rapture ready mindset. 2 Timothy 4.8 I think we said this before when we were talking about crowns this is the easiest crown to, uh, to earn. The easiest, um, this is like the basket weaving merit badge in uh, Boy Scouts. Every Eagle Scout I've ever met got the basket weaving, the basketry merit badge because it's the easiest merit badge under the sun. And um, it is so pathetically simple that it's almost an embarrassment to wear the thing, but you want to wear it because you need 21 merit badges to make Eagle Scout. So uh, when you talk about the, the crowns that we're going to win as church age believers, uh, this one is the, the, the basketry of, of uh, crowns because it's so easy. Second Tim, uh, Timothy 4.8 says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. All who have loved His appearing. This is a reward for rapture-ready believers. For those that were so in love with the Lord that the imminent return at any moment, the imminent return at any moment was such that it just it, it uh, shaped our thinking, it helped to mold our attitudes, it really uh, created the, the, the mindset by which we lived the, the totality of our Christian walk. Those who have loved His appearing. And so... Um, yeah, I hope you agree with me that this is a pretty easy crown and uh, you can start earning it right here, right now, today. Just develop a, uh, a love passion for that rapture of the church and uh, this crown is yours. Titus 2.13 Now I almost added this text last month when we were, or earlier this month when we were giving you that rapture survey. Remember we did 1 Thessalonians 4, we did 1 Corinthians 15, we did John 14, and we said okay those are the dominant texts and then we supplemented it with Philippians 3. Okay? The one glaring one that I left out among others, but the one glaring one I left out was this one in Titus 2. And uh, I think Luke mentioned it, Luke uh, Zoller, he loves this one. There's, there's other uh, folks that love the, the Titus 2 reference. Warren Dowd loves the book of Titus. So Titus 2.13 is a rapture reference and it's one of the easier ones because it actually uh, specifies it as the blessed hope which is uh, one of the titles for the rapture. I guess we'll pick up in verse 11, Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the glory and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And so we have rapture in the blessed hope, we have second advent in the uh, glorious appearing. Okay? Two separate things. And some people try to say it's one and the same, it's not. It's two separate things. Looking for the blessed hope and then what follows the blessed hope, 7 years later, the the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so to me it's inseparable. When you're looking at verse 12, you're looking at verse 13, you're looking at how do I live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age? Well, don't lose sight of the rapture. That's a big goad right there. Looking for the blessed hope. 
If you stop looking for the blessed hope, don't be shocked if you stop living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Because you've lost that sense of imminency, you've lost that sense of urgency, you, get, you develop this, eh, it's still years away, right? Or God's not really looking, or you know, I'll worry about that later, I'm having fun right now. Things like that. How sad is that? See, in uh, aspects there, I've shared several times that when I went to Desert Storm, we lost a soldier from the 411th MP Company who was killed on my birthday. Or actually, I think he was killed the day before my birthday in 1991. But, um, and he was one, we had talked about heaven. We talked about salvation and eternal life. There were five of us sitting in the barracks at Fort Hood. We were talking about it because we had been told the, the casualty estimate was expected to be 20%. You know, and it turned out to be nothing near that. It turned out to be just a fraction of a fraction. It was tiny. But we didn't know that going over. And before we shipped out, we, we had every, every respect for uh, chemical weapons and, and the Scud missiles and, and all the, the tanks and everything and, and uh, we had no idea what we were getting into. And, uh, and so they flat out said, and that was what we got from, from uh, Chain of Command, they said, you know, 20%. Just, just prepare for it and prepare your family for it. So we thought, hey, that's one in five, right? 20% is one in five. And there happened to be five of us sitting in, in my room in the barracks. And so we looked around and, and, we just, and then you kind of get morbid and you're joking and whatever. And we said, hey, you know, which one of us do you think it's going to be? <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, well, it's not me, it's not me. Or if it is, it doesn't matter. I know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. Where are you going? And so it then sparked the discussion, right? And, and the one that was the most dismissive, the one that was most mocking was uh, the one who died. And um, his, uh, his whole, he, he figured he'd, and he, right out of his mouth, he said, I'll get religious when I'm older. He said, right now, he says, I'm just, don't have time for that. I'm having too much fun. And, and how sad is that? See, um, anyway, this time of year I think about him as Veterans Day is approaching and different things. But if you are uh, losing track of, the, of uh, the imminency of the reward and losing track of the that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, then yeah, don't be shocked if uh, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age starts to, uh, starts to diminish. Now, imminency. And this is the benefit for it. And we're not the only ones with imminency. And this is a pattern. Let me just introduce this. We'll come back to this on Sunday. Other dispensations have had similar eschatological goads. Okay. Now they weren't living under a rapture expectation because the rapture is, is the church's finish line, right? Uh, there's no stewardship prior to us that, that ever had a rapture promised. Uh, the, the rapture is mystery, it's unique, it's connected to the church. But nevertheless, time and time and time again, God put His people under an imminent expectation of something. An imminent expectation of the flood, for example, in the days of Noah, and uh, not knowing when the waters were going to call. And here's Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and not knowing, you see, until Methuselah dies, and then, uh-oh, <laughs> get on the boat. And uh, the, the urgency there, okay? Or how about the imminent coming of the Messiah? And, and you've got uh, this old man who knows he can't die until he sees the Messiah, and there's an imminent expectation of that. And then there's Anna, the widow, and she was waiting for the Messiah. And there's that. So each age has had this certain expectation. The tribulation, likewise, is going to have this imminency because Jesus promised to return as a thief. And so here they're, they're in the tribulation, oh man, the, the Antichrist is, is executing people left and right. There's, there's all kinds of hell on earth. There's plagues, there's destruction, there's all kinds of death. And, uh, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. But man, when's that going to be? And how, ma- how much longer is it going to be? How many more days do we have to endure? And, uh, and uh, that whole sense of imminency when he says, I come as a thief. And when uh, the Jews are given their parables about you know, foolish virgins with, uh, without oil and, and wise virgins with oil. And, and all those, those are imminency applications. But those are specific applications to different audiences to different contexts. Okay? And, and we want to be clear on those. And I think it's useful. So Sunday we're going to spend Sunday morning charting those out and hopefully giving a, a useful breakdown on why 
The imminency concept makes them uh, analogous to one another, but the the separate context of audience makes them completely unrelated. And uh, so we don't get confused and, and try to take a, a second Advent passage like the Midnight Cry and try to blend that with the rapture of the church, see, which is tragic because uh, it's, a, it's a good gospel song. I like the Midnight Cry, but it breaks my heart. It's an abuse of Scripture to take a second Advent passage and apply it to the rapture. Okay, so I just ruined uh, a gospel song for you there. <laughs> we'll come back to this on Sunday morning, Lord willing, and uh, rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. And we may not come back Sunday morning, Father, because that trumpet can come tonight or any day between here and there. So I pray that each one of us will be rapture ready, that uh, rapture reflections will cause us to be rapture ready. And, uh, and be at work, Father. You, don't, you never coerce volition but boy, you have a powerful way to take your word and use your word in our thinking so that it renews us in the spirit of our mind. Thank you, Father, for all the ways that you manifest your glory. Um, take this message tonight and make it very real to each one of us in the coming days and weeks, however long we have left, Father. Might we be diligent about your business. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.